Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On November 30, 1984, drug and gun runner John McIntyre rode in the passenger seat of Patrick Knee's car. The two men made their way to Knee's brother's house to drop off cases of Miller Lite for a party. Despite being a routine errand for their boss, James Whitey Bulger, McIntyre was nervous. A few days earlier, McIntyre had agreed to tell the FBI and DEA everything he knew about Whitey, the Winter Hill Gang, and all of their South Boston criminal associates. Despite knowing what Whitey did to rats, he still went along with it. The car parked in front of 799 3rd Street in South Boston. McIntyre grabbed one of the beer cases and followed Knee into the kitchen. With each step, he felt himself calming down, reassuring himself that there was no way they could know he was cooperating with the feds. No one knew of the plan except for him, the FBI, and the DEA. McIntyre was halfway into the kitchen when he saw a 55-year-old man with stark white hair step out from behind the refrigerator. In his hand was a silenced Mac-10 machine pistol. It was the boss of South Boston himself, Whitey Bulger. Right then and there, McIntyre knew that Whitey also knew his secret. And there was only one thing to do with rats. Bury them in the basement. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on James Whitey Bulger, the South Boston crime boss whose reign of terror lasted from the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s. Whitey turned and later became an official FBI informant, using the agency to help eliminate rival gangsters. This week, we'll learn how the housing projects of South Boston shaped a young Whitey during the Great Depression and how he soon rose to become the leader of one of Boston's most notorious Irish criminal enterprises, the Winter Hill Gang. Next week, we'll explore how Whitey's domination of the Boston FBI allowed him to cement his place in the city. But word eventually got out of Whitey's cozy FBI relationship, leading to a 16-year-long manhunt to bring him to justice. Coming up we'll have the rise of Whitey Bulger. In the kitchen of 799 East 3rd Street in Boston, 55-year-old Boston crime boss Whitey Bulger sat across from John McIntyre. He felt nothing but hatred. He knew that McIntyre agreed to talk to the DEA, and there was nothing that Whitey loathed more than a rat. A cool breeze rattled the window on that day in November 1984. McIntyre was handcuffed and chained to a chair. Whitey set his Mac-10 machine pistol on the table and told him that they needed to talk. 
McIntyre knew he was doomed. There was a reason why Whitey had become the kingpin of South Boston, lording over the neighborhood's loan sharking, bookmaking, truck hijacking, and extortion rackets. And it wasn't by showing mercy. He knew that even if he was somehow able to talk his way out of this situation, there was nowhere to run. By the end of his career, Whitey sanctioned hits as far away as Oklahoma. McIntyre himself had even been involved in a weapons smuggling scheme into Ireland for Whitey, no less. His boss was an international criminal. The great irony, of course, was that Whitey got away with all of his criminal enterprises because he himself was an FBI informant. Whitey had grown up in the projects with an FBI agent named John Connolly. To him, Whitey was more than just a valuable pawn in their war against the Italian Mafia. And for Bulger, Connolly became his get-out-of-jail-free card. And it was Connolly who gave him the tip that one of his guys, McIntyre, was talking. Of course, only those in Whitey's inner circle knew of his deal between Bulger and Connolly. Besides, who would suspect Whitey of talking? He was the gentleman gangster who bought turkeys for poor South Boston families on Thanksgiving. The man who was a fitness nut. He didn't drink or smoke. The same Whitey who, for all of his wealth and power, still drove a Chevy Malibu and lived with his mother nearly until her death in 1980. Whitey was a Southie boy through and through. No one would accuse him of talking to the feds. So Whitey ran Southie. And that meant he had all the tools in his pocket, the power of the FBI and the power to do whatever needed to be done to anyone who crossed him. In the kitchen, John McIntyre shook his head, apologizing over and over again. He told his boss, I'm sorry, I was weak. Whitey wasn't interested in the apologies. He needed information. He turned the conversation to asking questions about what McIntyre told the FBI and DEA. And then, oddly, his questions shifted back towards business. McIntyre was entrenched in Boston's drug trade. Whitey had been forcing South Boston's drug dealers to pay him rent for working his streets, and he wanted to make sure he was still getting his fair cut. McIntyre spilled everything both what he said to the feds and about the drug industry. He held back nothing. By the time McIntyre was done talking, Whitey was satisfied. He calmed McIntyre down and assured him that they were just going to send him away. Once the heat died down, he could return to Boston. Somehow, Whitey managed to convince McIntyre to come down to the basement with him. And once they were downstairs, Whitey tried to strangle McIntyre with a rope, but the rope was too thick. All it did was make McIntyre throw up. Frustrated, Whitey grabbed a gun and shot him. With that bullet, Whitey used his position as an informant for the FBI to kill another informant, and the FBI had helped him do it. People like John McIntyre were collateral damage, the cost of doing business. Ultimately, McIntyre's death meant nothing to Whitey. In fact, he went upstairs and took a nap, a ritual he kept after every kill. Meanwhile, two of his henchmen buried the body. 
John McIntyre wasn't the first person buried in that house, and he wouldn't be the last. It was all a part of Whitey's mission to hold on to his power and wealth. He knew what it was like to be dirt poor, and he wasn't ever going to live that way again, no matter the costs. Whitey was born James Bulger Jr. on September 3, 1929. Even at an early age, he was known to have stark white hair, hence the name Whitey. He hated it, preferring instead to be called Jim or Jimmy. He was born in Everett, Massachusetts, a city a few miles north of Boston. But when he was eight years old, the family moved to the neighborhood that he would one day rule, South Boston. South Boston, or Southie, as the locals call it, has always seen itself as a place distinct from the rest of the city. Perhaps it's because Southie is a peninsula that juts out into Dorchester Bay. And when it was first settled, the neighborhood turned into an island during high tide. Or it might be because, from the mid-1800s onwards, Southie was predominantly a working-class Irish Catholic neighborhood that quickly became home to some of Boston's most violent gangs. Whatever the reason, Southie felt like a city within a city. There, the Bulgers moved into the Old Harbor Village Project, a public housing complex for families affected by the Great Depression. Miraculously, the family of seven managed to cram together and live off the pittance that Whitey's father brought in. James Bulger Sr. made his living as a one-armed laborer. Because few people wanted to hire a worker with only one arm, especially during the Great Depression, James Sr. never had a steady job throughout his entire life. This strained the family's finances and weighed on Whitey. He felt growing up impoverished meant he needed to make something of himself. Like many gangsters, Whitey had a fraught relationship with his father. James Sr. even beat him on several occasions for talking back. After that, Whitey seemed to develop a complete disdain for authority. Soon, the young boy had trouble obeying any authority figure, especially teachers. They described him as a surly, lazy student who had no interest in schoolwork. This attitude was a far cry from his younger brother, Billy. Billy would excel in his studies, later graduating from Boston College Law School. Unlike Whitey, Billy was the good son. Despite their differences, Whitey and Billy were close. They constantly had each other's backs. This strong bond would be key to Whitey's criminal success later on especially once Billy became a high-ranking politician in the Massachusetts Commonwealth government. It was only a matter of time before Whitey found his way into crime. With little money coming in for the family and a poor record in school, Whitey knew there was only one way out. He'd have to get his hands dirty. He started his criminal career around his 12th birthday stealing small-time merchandise like toasters and irons off the back of parked trucks. The kids called it tailgating. It wasn't long before Whitey graduated to more serious crimes. Just a year later, at 13, he was arrested for larceny and delinquency. It was no coincidence that around the same time, he also joined a youth street gang called the Shamrocks. While in the Shamrocks, Whitey began to style himself as a gentleman gangster, 
helpful to the community but ruthless toward his enemies. Whitey never saw himself as a bad person, and he certainly didn't want the rest of the world to see him that way either. He would often describe himself as a good bad guy. He might beat a kid up for money, but then he'd turn around and use that money to buy a different kid a treat, a regular Robin Hood. And it was during one of Whitey's early gentleman gangster moments when he met another kid who would be just as important to his future career as his brother, John Connolly. In the summer of 1948, eight-year-old John Connolly was hanging out with some friends at an ice cream store when Whitey Bulger passed by. Whitey asked the boys if they wanted some ice cream. Everyone said yes, except for Connolly. Connolly told Whitey that he wasn't supposed to take anything from a stranger. Whitey gallantly knelt down and told the young Connolly that both of their families were from Ireland, so they weren't strangers. They were both Irish. That was a gesture of brotherhood and all it took to get Connolly on his side. Connolly would remember this and similar acts of kindness from Whitey throughout his entire life. And years later, Connolly made sure to return the favor. As a teenager, Whitey was arrested multiple times for various crimes, including attempted rape. In order to create some distance from his growing rap sheet, though, he did what many wayward Southie boys did. He joined the military. From 1949 to 1952, Whitey served in the Air Force as an aircraft mechanic. Still, despite the strict military discipline, he was unable to shake his rule-breaking ways. He spent most of his time getting into trouble on various bases. While in Oklahoma City in 1950, Whitey even briefly sat in military jail for going AWOL. And yet two years later, Whitey left with an honorable discharge. At 23, Whitey returned to South Boston feeling restless and itching to earn money. He tried his hands at tailgating again, and he earned enough cash to buy an Oldsmobile. The wheels allowed him to court a local beauty named Jackie McAuliffe. But that wasn't enough. Whitey was ready to try his hand at something more serious than just petty knockoff jobs. He just didn't know his way in yet. So he went looking. Not long after returning home, Whitey began to hang around local bars. Even though he didn't drink, he knew they were the right place and the right time. And soon, he grew very friendly with a man named Carl Smith. Allegedly, Smith would be the one to introduce Whitey to a whole new profession. Bank robbing. Coming up, Whitey takes his first steps into serious crime. Hi listeners, I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from Parcast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, we turn the cameras on, and then it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. 
1952, 23-year-old James Whitey Bulger had returned to South Boston after serving three years in the Air Force. Military life was hardly satisfying, and he was dying to make a quick buck, so he returned to petty crime. But that wasn't enough either. His prayers were soon answered when he met Carl Smith, a bank robber from Indiana. Whitey met Smith at a local Southie bar sometime around 1955. And at the time, Whitey supposedly didn't know that his new friend was a bank robber. All he was aware of was that Smith needed a driver for something illegal, something exciting. Whitey readily agreed. Details of his first bank robbery are sparse, but Whitey himself reportedly claimed that when he discovered what the real job was, his first impulse was to back out. However, Whitey still went ahead with the job. He was too afraid of what the other guys in the crew would think if he chickened out. This first robbery was clearly a success. Granted, Whitey and Smith went on to rob several more banks in the months that followed. The score came in May of 1955 at a local branch of the Industrial National Bank in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Within four minutes, Whitey and the crew escaped with $42,112, or a little more than $400,000 today. For a kid who grew up during the Great Depression, this felt like finally hitting the big time. And to celebrate, 25-year-old Whitey took his girlfriend Jackie on multiple vacations to Florida, where he bought her anything she wanted. But things couldn't stay rosy forever. That same year in November, Whitey teamed up with fellow bank robber Richard Barchard to rob the Hoosier State Bank in Indiana. Though the job itself was successful, it proved to be one bank too many. A few months later, in early 1956, an informant spotted Whitey wearing a cheap disguise at a nightclub just north of Boston. He soon alerted the FBI, and Whitey was arrested shortly thereafter. The agent in charge of Whitey's arrest was a man named Paul Rico. Rico was notorious for his ability to flip criminals into informants. And in 1956, he saw potential in Whitey. He had found himself a new rat. Rico showed Whitey respect, never acting with condescension. Even though he came from the insular Southie, where ratting out anyone to the police was an unforgivable sin, Whitey proved different than his peers. He was quick to give up his accomplices. This would mark the first time in his criminal career that he was willing to sell others out in order to protect himself. According to Whitey, his reasons for talking were at least somewhat altruistic. He wanted to make sure his girlfriend Jackie was kept out of the fray. She hadn't done anything wrong, and the feds needed to leave her alone. He also claimed it was Carl Smith who'd ratted him out to the authorities in Indiana, and there was no need to protect someone like that. Yet, despite cooperating with the FBI, Whitey was still sentenced to 20 years in federal prison in June of 1956. Surprisingly, Whitey was optimistic about the situation. He saw it as an opportunity to finally get an education, a chance to better himself. But prison wasn't so clean cut. When he arrived at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, he immediately hated it. 
He tried to read and study, but sharing a cell with seven other men made it nearly impossible to focus. Whitey became desperate for an early release. In August of 1957, he even signed up to be a test subject for an experimental drug program run by the U.S. government. What he didn't realize was that he had just volunteered to be a part of MKUltra. Running from 1953 to 1964, MKUltra was a clandestine CIA program straight out of the pages of a Hollywood conspiracy thriller. Its objective was to find a mind control drug. The CIA's drug of choice at the time was lysergic acid diethylamide, commonly known as LSD. Whitey agreed to subject himself to weekly LSD injections for $3 a shot, though the trade-off was mere days taken off his overall sentence. By the end of his 15-month-long participation in the program, Whitey only got 54 days removed. The LSD, however, had a much longer-lasting effect. From that point onward, Whitey suffered from insomnia and debilitating nightmares. He was known to wake up in the middle of the night screaming. This condition would haunt him for the rest of his life. Despite his brush with MKUltra, Whitey managed to turn much of his energy to improving his mind. He became a voracious reader and tried his best to become a model inmate. In 1959, he was transferred to Alcatraz, adding his name to the long list of famous criminals to have served time at The Rock, as it was called. Alcatraz was better than Atlanta, but still, his time there convinced him that if and when he got out, Whitey would do whatever it took to never go back to prison again. The road back from Alcatraz to Boston would be long. But with help from his brother Billy, who was now a lawyer, Whitey was able to get transferred closer to home. First to Leavenworth, Kansas in 1962, and then Lewisburg, Pennsylvania in 1963. From there, he continued to keep his head down and do his time. Those efforts paid off. He was granted parole and left prison on March 1st, 1965. The 35-year-old Whitey thought he would live a life on the straight and narrow. This was his second chance, and he wasn't going to waste it. Unfortunately, Whitey was returning to a different South Boston, one that was in the midst of a violent gang war. But this same climate would pave the way for Whitey's climb to become the King of Southie. The war started on Labor Day weekend, 1961. George McLaughlin and his two brothers controlled most of the gambling and thievery in the North Boston neighborhood of Charlestown. And though they were mostly peaceful with their Somerville-based rivals, the Winter Hill Gang, it didn't necessarily mean they liked them. George was known as a loud drunk who loved to get rowdy at the bar. And on Labor Day weekend, he decided to grope a woman's breast. As it turns out, that woman was the wife of an associate of the Winter Hill Gang. The associate and his friends cornered George and beat him senseless. George ended up in the hospital. In retaliation, George's brother Bernie sent some of his own associates to plant a bomb in a Winter Hill Gang member's car. However, they were discovered and chased away before the bomb could be set. 
A short time later, Bernie was murdered for the attempted bombing. The drawn-out saga opened the door for Boston's underworld to explode into six years of chaos. The Boston-Irish gang war was one of the bloodiest periods of underworld violence in United States history. By the time the war came to an end in 1967, more than 60 were dead, including two of the McLaughlin brothers. George, the original instigator, was found guilty of first-degree murder in 1965 and would ultimately receive a life sentence. When the dust and bullets had settled, much of Boston's criminal leadership was either behind bars or six feet under. And while the Winter Hill Gang ultimately won the war, the carnage allowed the surviving smaller gangs to lay claim to various territories around the neighborhood. One of those gangs was a group known as the Killeen Brothers. And when Whitey met them shortly after his release from prison, he found that he couldn't resist the call to return to a life of crime. No matter how hard he tried. When we return, with the help of an old friend, Whitey rejoins the criminal underworld and becomes the boss of all of Southie. Now, back to the story. In March of 1965, 35-year-old James Whitey Bulger was released from prison after serving nine years for bank robbery. When he returned to South Boston, the neighborhood was in the midst of a brutal and costly gang war. But Whitey had sworn off getting involved or getting mixed up with crime, period. Unfortunately, fate knew just how to tempt his resolve. Whitey genuinely intended not to return to crime. He worked several odd jobs, some acquired with the help of his younger brother, Billy. But after a year of grinding away for little payoff, he barely made enough to get by each week. That feeling of wanting more returned. Soon, he began to revisit his old haunts, hanging around with Southie's notorious wise guys, at least those who had survived the violence of the gang war. It wasn't a plunge back into a full-fledged life of crime, but Whitey was certainly dabbling. And soon, in late 1966, things took a fateful turn. While hanging around the Transit Café, he met the Colleen brothers. Donnie and Kenny Colleen were two of the biggest gangsters in South Boston. There, they ran profitable gambling and loan sharking businesses. Most of their clients were longshoremen and factory workers on the harbor. The Irish Gang War of the early 60s had paved the way for them to become one of the top gangs in Southie, but not without a cost. It depleted their ranks of men. They needed new muscle. Despite being out of the criminal scene for a decade, Whitey still had a fierce reputation in Southie. To the Colleens, the hardened ex-convict seemed like the perfect fit. They asked him if he wanted to be an enforcer. Without giving it a second thought, Whitey agreed. It isn't entirely clear why Whitey agreed to become a murderer. This was, after all, a serious escalation from bank robbing. In all likelihood, he knew that if he wanted to make something of himself, it would mean getting his hands bloody. What is clear, though, was that Whitey needed to be taught how to successfully pull off routine murders. And not long after he joined the Colleens, Whitey was paired with a man who would mentor him in the art of killing 
Billy O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan was an ex-Marine and lethal with a gun. He was infamous for his ruthlessness. Whitey had most likely never killed anyone before, and he was obviously unsettled by it. However, he and O'Sullivan became friends, and feeling more reassured, Whitey proved to be a fast learner. Which was a good thing, because another gang war broke out in South Boston in July of 1969. The Irish were nothing like the Italians. Instead of being meticulously organized with a rigid, ethnicity-based criminal structure, the Irish were far looser, a network of affiliated gangs who primarily focused on small-time crime. They fought with one another just as often as they worked together. In the wake of the Irish Gang War, the Colleens had managed to maneuver themselves into a position of supremacy. This hierarchy meant that a smaller gang known as the Mullins had to defer to them. And the Mullins hated it. For a time, the Colleens and Mullins put their differences aside and worked together. But the animosity remained. South Boston was always a powder keg waiting for a spark. And in the summer of 1969, that spark was named Mickey Dwyer. At the Transit Cafe, well known to be the domain of the Colleens, Mullen associate Mickey Dwyer decided, for whatever reason, that it was high time to complain about the Colleens, in a Colleen-dominated bar, no less. As it turns out, Kenny Colleen was at the bar that day and wasn't too thrilled about Dwyer's unnecessary jabs. So, he tackled Dwyer to the floor and, in the ensuing tussle, shot Dwyer in the arm and bit off part of his nose. In a split second, the keg had sparked. The Mullins had been looking for an excuse to go to war for a long time, and now they finally had it. Fortunately, the Colleens had two of the most notorious hitmen in town, Billy O'Sullivan and now 39-year-old Whitey Bulger. It's widely believed that it was during this war when Whitey committed his first murder. According to one of Whitey's later associates, he was soon tasked with killing a Mullen boss named Paul McGonagall. Unfortunately, Whitey accidentally shot Paul's brother instead, who had no involvement in the gang war. When he told O'Sullivan about the mix-up, O'Sullivan told him not to worry about it. So, despite feeling guilty, Whitey apparently shrugged the wrongful death off. He went back to work. But by 1971, the war started to turn against the Colleens. In March that year, O'Sullivan himself was killed, ambushed in front of his own house. At the time, Whitey was in New York visiting an old friend from prison. Whitey was sobered by O'Sullivan's death. Not only was his friend and mentor gone, but the ambush drove home that he could be next. Paranoid, perhaps rightfully so, Whitey began taking extra precautions as he moved throughout the city. He even bought the nicest suit he could afford and hung it in his then-girlfriend's closet. In the event he was gunned down, he'd at least have one nice outfit to be buried in, one without any bullet holes in it. More than anything, O'Sullivan's death made Whitey reconsider working for the Killeens. Was there a point to putting his life on the line in their fruitless war? especially if he might not live to see the profits. 
There needed to be a change in South Boston, and that could only come with an end to the gang war. On May 13, 1972, Donnie Colleen left his son's fourth birthday party to grab something from his car. When he stepped outside, two men appeared and shot Donnie 15 times. Allegedly, Whitey orchestrated the hit himself. As the story went, he knew the Colleen's days were numbered, so he double-crossed them. He entered a secret alliance with the Mullins, positioning himself to take out his old boss. Though the Mullins denied the rumor and took sole credit for the murder, events from the following week seemed to suggest otherwise. It looked like a big power grab for Whitey. According to some sources, Whitey secretly approached Howie Winter, the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, to broker a peace agreement. He pitched himself as acting boss of the Colleen's, even though the gang's leadership might have been expected to pass down to Donnie's brother, Kenny. Howie, who was friendly with the Mullins, agreed to arbitrate a truce with Whitey acting as the Colleen leader. For 42-year-old Whitey Bulger, this was a moment with great potential. If he played his cards right, he could stay the leader of the Colleen's, or maybe, if he was lucky, get something even better. But during that mid-morning sit-down, Howie Winter had other plans. He managed to convince both sides that they could make more money working together as part of the Winter Hill Gang. Whitey and the Mullins eventually agreed to collaborate under Howie Winter. But there was one caveat. Kenny Colleen wouldn't be part of the organization. By one account, not long after the truce, Kenny Colleen was on his balcony on Dorchester Bay when a sniper shot nearly killed him. Another story, which has often been disputed, suggests that a few days later, Whitey took a less deadly but still clear approach. He drove up next to Kenny, who was walking down the street and allegedly yelled, It's over. You're out of business. No other warnings. Whatever the actual circumstances surrounding his decision were, Kenny finally caught the hint and left the Irish underworld. Howie Winter was impressed with how Whitey helped resolve the gang war alongside handling the Colleen's. As a reward, he appointed Whitey as leader of all the Winter Hill Gang Southie operations. If orchestrating the killing of his former boss Donnie had been Whitey's big gamble, then the bet paid off. In less than a decade, Whitey Bulger had gone from ex-con working menial jobs to, essentially, the boss of all South Boston. Sure, he technically answered to Howie Winter, but his position of power was undeniable. In the three years that followed, Whitey ran all of the racketeering and loan sharking in Southie. And he did it all with the help of his right-hand man, Stevie the Rifleman Flemmy. Flemmy, a son to Italian immigrants, was a mobster from Boston's Roxbury neighborhood, and he was known for being a deadly accurate sniper. However, given his background, he proved even more helpful when it came to relations with the Italian mafia. In fact, Flemmy was personal friends with New England's mafia boss, Raymond L.S. Patriarca. It was a unique position to be in. Few could straddle the two dominant underworld organizations. 
However, Flemmy had even more protection than just good relations with the Irish and the Italians. He was also an FBI informant. The Bureau had a national mandate to take down La Cosa Nostra. It was worth it for them to look the other way on Flemmy's criminal behavior if he gave them information on the Italians. Sources differ as to whether or not Whitey was aware of Flemmy's role as a rat. It's possible that he knew and saw it as an advantage over the Italians. After all, for three years, the Irish-Italian relationship was relatively peaceful. But in 1975, tensions were beginning to rise. The current trouble with the Italians arose over vending machines. A company had been paying the mafia $50,000 a month for a monopoly in all the bars in Boston. Whitey and the Winter Hill gang realized there was a lot of money to be made in the machines. They decided that in their parts of town, they should be the ones who controlled the machines. The mafia obviously didn't agree. Rumors of a war began to circulate throughout Boston, putting Whitey on edge. Whitey wasn't certain that the Winter Hill Gang could come out on top. Worse still, the Mafia's current leader was known for using his police contacts to arrest criminals who wouldn't fall in line. If Whitey didn't know Flemmy was talking to the feds, having police contacts would then prove to be a big advantage for the Italians. Whitey and the Winter Hill Gang would be sitting ducks if a war broke out. They needed someone on their side. Enter John Connolly, the boy Whitey bought ice cream for back in 1948. By now, the 35-year-old Connolly was an up-and-coming FBI agent in the Organized Crime Division. He knew that the Winter Hill Gang was close to blows with the New England Mafia, and he knew they were outgunned. Connolly came up with a daring idea. He figured the time was ripe to make a deal with the Irish mobsters. For one, the Italian mafia was the white whale for the feds. In comparison, Irish street gangs were small-time fish for the FBI. Secondly, Connolly personally knew the Bulger family. He was friends with Billy Bulger, who by now was a state senator, and figured he could use their Southie history to lure Whitey in as an informant. It was a win-win deal. The FBI wanted to take down the Italian Mafia, and the Winter Hill Gang needed to offset the Mafia's crooked cops. Sometime in mid-1975, Connolly got word to Whitey that he wanted to meet. Whitey was interested, but equally wary. Meeting with the FBI could be dangerous, especially if someone saw it. Though Whitey had no problem ratting out his enemies, he knew that even being suspected of informing was a death sentence in Southie. But, ultimately, Whitey agreed to meet with Connolly, at least to hear what his neighborhood brother had to say. On September 18, 1975, Whitey and Connolly met at Wollaston Beach in suburban Quincy. Both men were on edge, unsure if it was a waste of time or some kind of a trap. Connolly started off his pitch slowly. He told Whitey he'd heard the Mafia was already leaking information about Whitey to the police in an effort to get him arrested. Hearing this from an FBI agent spooked Whitey. He told Connolly, What if three cops stop me at night and say there was a machine gun in my car? Who is a judge going to believe, me or the three cops? 
For his part, Connolly saw this as his moment to sell. He asked Whitey, Why don't you use us to do what they're doing to you? Fight fire with fire. Hearing Connolly's pitch phrased like this appealed to Whitey. In his mind, he wasn't a rat, but a strategist. It was the smart move to work with the feds. However, Whitey needed some time to think it over just to be sure. Two weeks later, Whitey officially agreed to work with Connolly. But there were a few conditions. He wouldn't hurt any of his associates. He would only consult Connolly about the New England mob, and he would never rat on the Irish Republican army. The final request confused Connolly. He had never once asked Whitey about the IRA. Turns out, Whitey was a devout Irish Republican. He had been making secret plans to send weapons to his Irish brothers in their fight against the British. He didn't want the FBI derailing his future plans. Connolly figured he could deal with these terms for the time being, and the bargain was struck. As they shook hands, Whitey famously said, Deal me in. If they want to play checkers, we'll play chess. Whitey was referring to the mafia, but his words could have been directed at the FBI too. The feds thought they could control Whitey, but in a few short years, Whitey would become the one telling them what to do. And with that handshake, Whitey knew he could act with total impunity. He would use his relationship with Connolly to take over the Boston underworld, rake in millions, and kill anyone who got in his way. Thanks for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Whitey Bulger used his FBI contacts to dominate the Boston criminal underworld and how his overconfidence in the agency ultimately caused his downfall. Amongst the many sources we used, we found Whitey Bulger, America's Most Wanted Gangster and the Manhunt That Brought Him to Justice, by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy to be particularly helpful. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Kingpins was written by Charles Brock, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Hey, listeners. Don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>